This is the podcast where you can listen to my award-winning audiobook, But He Spit in My Coffee. I'm Carrie Williams, the author. Cindy Peller is our reader. If you haven't been with us since the beginning, I suggest going back to start with episode one. 63. Crossroads Academy is a 20-minute drive from our house. It looks like any ordinary public school with a sprawling rectangular footprint and brick facade. I sign in and the kindly office lady walks me upstairs to the seclusion room. As we turn the corner halfway up the stairwell, she stops and points to the rail running across the landing at the top. Last week, Devin was up there. On top of the rail? I gasp. She nods grimly. He was running through the halls and came in here. He said he was going to jump. I suck in a sharp breath. Oh, my God. I don't think he really wanted to. She begins the trudge up the remaining stairs ahead of me. When we did a suicide assessment, he said he did it because he was bored. In the silence of the second floor hallway, I'm self-conscious as my flip-flops slap on the floor like some sort of contorted Morse code distress signal. Even if he wasn't trying to, he still could have slipped and fallen, I say. And that's why he's lost his shoes. At my perplexed look, she explains, they're less likely to run in their socks. I hear the thumping and yelling long before we enter a classroom with several jumbled rows of desks. Devin's head pops in and out of view through the small square window of what I assume is the seclusion room as he hurls himself against the door. With each thrust, a wiry man, a teacher-turned-jailer, pitches backwards. He resets his feet to maintain balance and holds the door closed. This is the first time I'm seeing a seclusion room for myself. It's like a walk-in closet built into one corner of the larger classroom. The door closes, but apparently it doesn't lock. It's frightening. I get that the staff have to keep him from hurting himself, attacking other people, and damaging property. But surely there's a better way. Mr. Jones, this is Devin's mother, Mrs. Williams. My escort makes the introduction and heads back to the office. Something has to be done about this. Spit sprays from Mr. Jones's mouth. This has got to stop. We can't be doing this every day. I'm embarrassed to be putting him out, but I'm also a bit indignant. Isn't this his job? Devin, I coax. I'm here. Calm down so we can open the door, okay? Back away, Mr. Jones hollers at Devin in an angry staccato. Back, away. His body jolts with another impact. To me, he says, this has got to stop. Every day, he does this every day. To Devin, back, away. I peep through the window so Devin can see my face. I call to him soothingly. Did you hear that? Back up. Calm down and he'll open the door. The thumping stops. I peer through the small window. Devin stands panting near the back wall. He's calmed down, I say. Let me go in. With a disapproving grimace, Mr. Jones reluctantly steps back and I swing open the door. It's heavy, like the door to an industrial walk-in refrigerator. I step in, fighting my own claustrophobia by reminding myself that there's no lock. The room is dim. The air is stale. Let's try to relax, I tell Devin. 
finding it nearly impossible to keep my tone calm. Taking measured breaths, I sink to the floor and press my back against the thickly padded walls. I'm surprised at how hard the floor is beneath me. I motion to Devon to sit beside me. What happened? I ask. He flops down and bounces the back of his head on the padded wall behind him. They was being mean to me. They locked me in here for no reason. No reason, he bites out. I take deep breaths as I listen to him. Inhale. One, two, three, four, five. Exhale. Five, four, three, two, one. If you calm down, we can go sit at a desk to talk instead of in here. Wouldn't that be so much better? Five seconds in. Five seconds out. Devin's head bounces softly back against the padded walls, and he thinks about it. Five seconds in. Five seconds out. The door peels open, and Mr. Jones sticks his head in. He barks, You stop banging your head right now. Devin glares at him. He slams his forehead hard off of the floor. 64. With each family therapy session, the angry knot inside me unravels a little more. Kira isn't trying to create some sort of phony attachment between Devon and me. She's not trying to thrust him back into our house before he's ready. She's gently picking out the tangle that is our relationship, and it's working. I don't get that sick feeling in my stomach anymore when I'm driving to family therapy. I'm genuinely happy to see Devon. Our sessions feel productive. I usually meet with Kira for about ten minutes before she brings Devon in. Today, I tell her about Sarah. I have a good feeling about her, and I've started letting her talk to Kayla on the phone. She leans forward in her chair. That is fascinating. It may be a window of opportunity. She may struggle to stay clean after she is released from supervision. Kira is confirming my own thoughts. Because Sarah is on parole, she's taking her prescribed bipolar medication, seeing a therapist, and is regularly tested for drugs and alcohol. It may be literally a once-in-a-lifetime moment for Devin and Kayla to connect with her in a healthy way. What do you think about her having contact with Devin? I ask. Kira doesn't respond immediately. She leans back and looks thoughtful. Do you think she is supportive of the adoption? She's not trying to compete with me. It's more like she wants the role of a friend or older sister. Kira's stacked cosmetic jewelry rings flash as she gesticulates. It could be for Devin very positive. How would you do it? When he's home for a visit, we could call her on speakerphone. That's how it started off with Kayla. Kira nods as she stands and reaches for the doorknob. I am excited about this. It could be for Devin a wonderful connection. Let me see if he is here yet, and we'll bring him back. Devin slouches and shuffles his sneakers against the carpet. I hand him the wax paper Dunkin' Donuts bag that I've brought and sweep the hood off of his head. He peers into the bag. Seeing his favorite treat, he grins. Can I eat it now? 
Kira reaches for a napkin in her drawer. Devin settles next to me on the love seat and bites into the donut. Let us start off with what is going well for you, Kira prompts. Devin holds a finger to his lips. Mom don't like when people talk with food in their mouths. Her thinks it's gross. Mom doesn't like it. And you're so right. I give his knee a pat. Finished chewing, he says. I'm keeping my room clean. Kira shifts in her chair. You are very neat and clean. I have heard that about you. What else? He devours the remaining donut in one huge bite. I'm good during rec time. Recreational time is fun. You have to work on behaving during the not-so-fun times as well. Did you make it to level two yet? I ask. Licking his fingers, Devin shakes his head. Them didn't want to give it to me. Kira clucks her tongue. How did it really happen? When he doesn't respond, she says, For what reason was it that you did not make level? His eyes loll to the floor and his head droops. I got it upset and ripped up my room. You broke the TV. Now none of you boys has a TV. You need to try again to make level. What do you think, Mom? Do you think Devin can do it? He absolutely can, I say with complete confidence. I've never doubted that Devin can do it. Will he choose to do it? That's another story. He grins sheepishly. How was your last home visit? Kira asks me. It was good. We went to the bike path, I say. Was that nice, Devin? Kira asks. We went to Golden Corral, he says with a big smile. Kira leans forward in her chair. This weekend will be your first overnight in a while. Your first since coming to Bridgeton. How do you feel about that? Good. Devin says, wearing a smile and a white powder mustache. Devin presses his hands to his ears as the alarm screams. You need to earn trust back, I explain, soberly, but not unkindly. I test the alarm on his bedroom door one more time. For now, this will let me know when you leave your bedroom at night. Devin keeps his face expressionless. Are his feelings hurt? Is he upset by the alarm? I hope not. But what else can I do? It's Devin's first overnight since threatening to kill Brandon and me. I'd asked Delano to sleep upstairs instead of in his recliner so we wouldn't need the alarm. Him not do nothing, Delano said, hissing his teeth. Delano has still never seen the frightening side of Devin. In fact, Devin is eager to please when Delano is around. He's always volunteering to vacuum or sweep. He seems to enjoy flaunting his relationship with Delano, as if to show what he's withholding from me. That night, I lay in bed wondering if Devin will figure a way around the alarm. Amias asked me to hide the knives. I did, but anything could be a weapon if we're asleep. Brandon snuggles on my right side and Kayla snores on my left. Amias stretches across the bottom of the bed, and I have my legs folded uncomfortably to make room for him. The kids are way too old and big to be in my bed. It's a long, restless night. My eyes burn in the bright morning sunlight as I walk to the mailbox. 
The shadow of a migraine lurks behind my eyes from not sleeping. The box is packed full with several days' worth of mail. Sorting through, I find what I was hoping for. Two hand-addressed envelopes, one for Devon and the other for Kayla, both from Sarah. A few weeks ago, at Kira's encouragement, Devon had his first conversation with Sarah. I'd placed the phone on speaker and Sarah's eager voice greeted him. Devon's responses were limited to, uh-huh, no, and nodding his head, which I reminded him she couldn't see. I didn't sense a lack of desire to talk to her. It was more that she's a stranger to him. I created a small collage for Devon with a picture of Sarah forming a heart with her fingers. Next to that, I put a picture of her tattoo with his initials. I laminated it and gave it to him during a session with Kira. I heard from the staff that he keeps the laminated collage under his pillow. Last time we spoke, Sarah told me she was saving money to buy video games for Devon and Kayla, but I'd said not to worry about expensive gifts. They'll love anything you give them because it's from you. It can be as simple as a lucky penny or one of your bracelets. She'd seemed relieved and said she'd put something in the mail for them right away. I walk up the driveway carrying the envelopes. They're decorated with doodled hearts and flowers. Sarah's name and address are written in curly letters on the top left. I carefully tuck my fingernail under one envelope seal and pry it open, trying not to tear the flap. Devon's card is a folded sheet of copy paper with a hand-drawn puppy dog on the front. Inside, it says, Devon, I've never forgotten you. I went through a lot when I was younger. I was living on the streets. I'm so sorry I couldn't take care of you. Please forgive me. I know you might be angry with me, and that's okay. But can we be friends? I thought you might need some luck, so here's a lucky penny. Carry it with you everywhere you go. Love, Mommy Sarah. There's a shiny penny from the year Devin was born wedged into one corner of the envelope. Kayla's card has a pencil-sketched kitten and mentions a guardian angel necklace. She's going to be disappointed, though, because there is a tear in the corner of the envelope and no necklace. Using a little glue, I reseal the envelopes. I find Devin and Kayla and hand them the cards. They tear them open. As Devin reads, his eyes grow wide. He searches the envelope for the penny. He grasps it in his fingers. I never had me a lucky penny before, he says. I smile, happy for him, but turn to console Kayla, who is searching the corners of her envelope. 65. What's he doing now, I say, recognizing Janice's voice on the other end of the phone. These calls mean only one thing. Devin is in trouble. You sure know your son, Janice says. She's one of the regular staff assigned to Devon's Bridgeton group home. He started his ballerina thing again. Ballerina? I ask, pushing in my keyboard drawer and standing. Has no one told you about that? He has a couple different personalities. One is a ballerina, another is a thug. She tells me how the boys were playing football, and Devin didn't want to go inside for shower time. 
Left alone in the backyard with Janice, he'd skulked around the edges of the fence, looking for sticks and then threw them in her general direction. You're not my boss, you nigger, he spat. I wince, hoping she doesn't think he learned that word from me. Janice had leaned against the porch door and scrolled through her phone while discreetly tracking his movements. After a few minutes, Devin shook himself like a wet dog. He hooped his arms over his head and did his best imitation of a plie. When Janice didn't respond, he skipped across the lawn, arms haloed over his head, and twirled like a ballerina in a tutu. I can't help but laugh out loud, picturing him, body like a husky football player prancing across the lawn. Janice chuckles. He's been twirling and walking on his tiptoes for, oh, over an hour now and he's talking in a high-pitched girl voice. I'm waiting him out, but thought I should let you know. I'm sorry, I say. Oh, don't be. That's my job. She clears her throat. Some staff are wondering if he has multiple personality disorder. Have you ever had him checked for that? Of course not. How absurd. I can't believe that anyone is taking this ballerina personality seriously. But, squelching any sarcasm, I answer, No, he's never acted that way before. Lately, he's been blacking out also. He can't remember a thing after his fits are over. How convenient. Mm-hmm, I say noncommittally. When he's in a mood, he throws his shoes away and then says he has no memory of doing it. You might could get him evaluated for multiple personality disorder and the blackouts, to be sure. I wonder if multiple personality disorder is even a real thing, or if it's just a diagnosis from melodramatic TV shows. I asked Kira about it in our next session. She hasn't heard about Devin's personalities and blackouts before, either. Multiple personality disorder has been reclassified as dissociative identity disorder, she explains. It is rare, and I do not see where Devon meets diagnostic criteria. I don't know anything about that. But one thing I know for sure is that Devon is faking these symptoms and getting a huge payout for doing so. With a thoughtful look, Kira goes on. After working with Devon for several months, I am at a bit of a loss. In sessions, he seems to clearly understand what he needs to do, but he doesn't do it. Let us get him scheduled for a psych eval and a neurological and see if it gives some clues. A ballerina personality? I wish I could see that. Becky laughs when I tell her about Devon's latest scheme. Then she asks, can you come over? My friends who have a kid like Devon are here. Remember I told you about them? When she adds a sing-song bribe, I'll make you coffee. I head over. I open Becky's front door and am hit with a tsunami of noise. Kids are everywhere, mine included, running up and down the stairs, playing ping pong. I hear shouts of video gaming from upstairs. Becky introduces me to Ted and Carol, who are sitting at her kitchen table eating Tostitos and salsa. I join them. Coffee, I remind Becky, and she goes to make a fresh pot. 
Ted laughs easily as we chat and passes me the salsa with well-worn hands sporting knobby knuckles. Carol is stoic, with the look of someone trying to smile for appearances, but not really engaged. Her mind is elsewhere. Ted tells me how they have one biological daughter, Bella, who's ten, and they adopted three boys out of foster care. The youngest, Ethan, is five. The oldest, Matt, he points through the sliding glass window at a boy with floppy curls, is jumping on the trampoline with Brandon and Jacob. I can hear his laughter through the glass. There's a middle son, too, Jake, and he's upstairs playing video games. Carrie has two kids adopted out of foster care. I wanted you to talk because her son Devin is a lot like your son Matt, Becky says, directing the conversation. She stops speaking abruptly as Kayla comes into the room with a petite little girl who I assume is Bella. We're going to take Ben for a walk, Kayla says. You know Ben is too old to go for walks, Becky tells her. Kayla shrugs. I'm going to carry him. She disappears under the kitchen table and emerges, cradling the dog in her arms. Once the girls have gone out through the front door, Becky looks at me. Matt has some serious behavioral problems. They sound a lot like Devin. Carol fixes me with intense, dark brown eyes. He refuses to clean his room, do homework, do anything I tell him to. He won't do it just because I told him to. He's the most stubborn kid I've ever, Ted interrupts. He's not that bad. You get frustrated too easily. He throws fits like a two-year-old, Carol spits out at Ted, and her fury is palpable. It has a lot to do with parenting, Ted scoffs. I hold up my hands. I don't know many details, but these are Becky's close friends, and she's heard enough to feel their son has very similar issues to Devin. Your son may have reactive attachment disorder like mine does. There's a book about it. I pause, trying to recall the name, but only images of the cover come to me, purple with a teddy bear. I explain what I know of the disorder and say, these kids see their mom as the enemy because of the abuse or neglect they experienced. Instead of trying to bond with her, they push her away. And, I say with emphasis and a hard look in Ted's direction, they hide their behaviors from their dads as a way to control their mom. Carol is nodding her head emphatically, while Ted shakes his. Becky leans across the table. Ted, we've been dealing with this for years. Just because you don't see it doesn't mean it's not happening. By the look on Ted's face, he doesn't agree. Becky brings over a box of tissues and Carol takes one. Her voice cracks. I don't know what to do anymore. I feel like I'm going crazy. And when he broke Bella's iPod and threatened her, I lost it. I want to be loving, but I can't. I can't. I understand, I say to reassure her. You need to get a copy of that book. I think it's called something about love isn't enough. What do they do for kids with... What did you call it? Reactive attachment disorder, RAD. How do they treat RAD? I wish that I had a better answer, but give her the truth instead. What I've found is that there really aren't treatments to fix this. I tell her a little of our story. 
and how Devin has been getting out of home treatment now for over three years and only getting worse. Carol presses her hand to her throat. What can I do? I know I can't give Devin the help he needs at home. I've tried. So, I've had to pick what's best for my other kids and keep them safe. And that's why I leave him in those facilities. Becky says, You may need to start thinking like that, too. Ted pushes back his chair, walks to the sliding glass door and lets himself out. The three of us watch him in silence as he walks to the trampoline and begins talking and laughing with the boys. Carol draws my attention back inside as she says, I get so angry sometimes, I scare myself. Once, I picked him up by his neck. She extends her arm with her thumb and forefinger forming a C, and I can practically see the kid dangling there. Her voice shakes. I carried him straight up the stairs like that. Ted had to come and pull me away. I lost it. There's no hesitation in my response now. You need to get him out of your house. Everyone has a breaking point. You've got to get him out before something bad happens. It's easy to think if you spank them a little harder or one more time, they'll get it. They won't. Carol doesn't say the words, but I read the desperation in her eyes and the hopelessness in the slump of her shoulders. I know the unspoken root of this type of guilt. I lower my voice. I don't tell many people this, but the truth is that I have a strong sense of responsibility for Devin, but that's it. I've tried to love him, but I don't know how to. Carol's rock-hard exterior crumbles. That's exactly how I feel. She sobs out. It's been eating me up inside. I don't love Matt. But I haven't ever been able to say it out loud. 66. We settle into a routine at Bridgeton. At our monthly CFT meetings, we review Devin's progress, or more accurately, lack of progress, on his therapeutic goals. It's been months, and he has yet to get off of level one. He knows all of the rules, and he knows his discharge plan. He can rattle it off from memory, but he simply won't comply with it. This perplexes the staff and Kira, but not me. Devin plans to discharge all right, but on his own terms. This is about him being oppositional. At New Hope, he learned that he can get a special set of rules and rewards— it probably started in kindergarten when Miss Lizzie took him for walks. That's when he learned that he doesn't have to follow the rules. He's stubbornly holding out for special treatment here, too. We have family therapy every other week, and Devin comes home on the weekends. The kids look forward to his visits. He's a much-fought-over player for their backyard kickball and soccer teams. He plays Candyland with Brandon. As night settles over the house... The kids become nervous and fearful. They pile into my bed despite the alarm on Devin's bedroom door. Devin hates the alarm, and I don't blame him. But I don't remove it either. Kira suggests a family therapy session with Devin, Amias, and Kayla to work on healing the relationship. While they meet, I sit in the lobby. 
I respond to work emails on my phone and scroll through my Facebook feed. I upload a couple pictures, one of Kayla getting ready to clean the bathroom with rubber gloves on her feet like flippers, and one of Brandon asleep, hugging his football like a teddy bear. I tag Papa, my mom, and Becky. I tag Sarah, too. An hour later, the kids emerge from Kira's office. Ms. Williams, let me speak with you for a moment. Kira nods toward the receptionist, an unspoken instruction to keep an eye on the kids. Amias pulls his school iPad out of his backpack, probably to show Devin some inane video on YouTube. I follow Kira into the office and sink into my usual spot on the love seat. How did it go? I ask. Devin talked about feeling left out and not living at home. Amias and Kayla discussed some of their fears. She pauses for a long moment as though choosing her words. I brace for the worst. She says, I am glad we did this because I was able to see the family dynamic. Amias and Kayla are very well-spoken for their age. They are mature and have excellent vocabularies, especially Amias. He thinks and communicates like an adult. She shakes her head as though she was taken off guard. Did she think that our whole family is a mess? I'm heartened that someone is finally seeing that I'm not actually a terrible mother. Kira continues, I am going to have to think about how to help Devin bridge that gap. They are on a whole different level than he is. He's never going to fit in with them. Before leaving, I snap a few pics of the three kids together. Devin, now twelve, stands in the middle with his arms over Kayla and Amias's shoulders. They make faces, and it's impossible to get a shot with all three of them smiling. I settle for a goofy pose. I hug Devin goodbye and tell him that I'll see him in a couple of days at his doctor's appointment. Am I getting shots? He asks. No, nothing like that. It'll just be talking. I give his arm an encouraging squeeze and head for the car with Kayla and Amias. I don't remember nothing when I wake up, Devin says with his trademark wide-eyed look. What do you mean wake up? The neurologist asks. I wake up and don't remember nothing. It's all black. What about before you go to bed? Do you remember then? Devin's eyes slant toward the ceiling. Yes. He draws out the word like a string of silly putty. You remember what's happened until you go to sleep, but wake up with no memory of the incident? That's what you're calling blacking out? Devin bobs his head. I remember what I'm doing before I go to sleep. I wake up and forgot. The doctor places a stethoscope to Devin's chest and back. Janice and I sit on chairs pushed against one wall of the exam room. As the doctor performs a basic physical exam, he continues asking questions. Is there anything specific that seems to cause the blackouts? Being mad. I saw monsters on my eyelids telling me what to do, too. I struggle to school my features. Devin's always thought the best way to sell a lie is to oversell it. At least that makes it easy to know when he's lying. The doctor begins to type notes into the computer. After a pause, Devin continues unbidden. Nobody believes me. 
but I don't remember nothing when I'm having a fit. Nothing, except sometimes voices telling me to do things, like throwing my shoes away or hitting the window with rocks. Do they ever tell you to do other things? What kind of things? The doctor shrugs. Ordinary things? Like go watch TV or look out the window? No, just bad stuff. The doctor writes an order for a brain scan, but he tells Janice and me that it's not necessary to have one performed unless we want to. Devon shows no sign of a neurological disturbance or injury. Due to liability, I assume, Bridgeton schedules the scan anyway. The results of the neurological exam and scan are as expected, both clear. Bridgeton provides this information as well as other documentation to a third-party clinician who does a new psychological evaluation of Devon. A few weeks later, the results are in. The report begins with a summary of Devon's social and early childhood history. This time, for the kinetic family drawing test, Devon drew a detailed and colorful setting with stick-figure people. When the clinician asked him what the family was doing in the drawing, he responded, Dad is about to teach us how to swim. Mom is watching. She doesn't do much. I bat away my annoyance and continue reading. The evaluation reaffirms the RAD diagnosis, but this time explains how it impacts Devin's behaviors in a way that makes a whole lot more sense than what Beth had explained to me. He seems impulsive and resentful. These oppositional behaviors are a defensive stance to combat past and currently felt humiliations. Deep resentments toward authority figures are projected outward, causing frequent social and family difficulties. Punishments probably only reinforce his rebelliousness, defiance, and suspicious attitude. The desire to provoke fear and to intimidate others likely stems from a need to overcome his own sense of weakness and to vindicate past perceived injustices. As I read, I hold my breath, daring to feel hopeful. Is this the key I've been searching for? In treatment, Devin will likely challenge and seek to outwit therapists by setting up situations that test the therapist's skills, catch inconsistencies, arouse anger, and belittle and humiliate him, her. He may further actively impede progress and rob himself of what steps he has made toward treatment goals. He will likely resist exploring motives and feelings and will likely often blame others for problems and externalize responsibility for his actions. It is unlikely that he will experience guilt or accept blame for the turmoil he causes. I scramble for my cell phone. As soon as the call connects, I blurt, You're not going to believe it. I got Devin's new psych eval. Hang on, I can't talk, Becky says. I'm at the grocery store. I ignore her. This can't wait. Listen to this. He seems impulsive and resentful. I read the paragraphs to her. Wow. I know. She even realized how he manipulates therapists like he did with Wanda and Beth. I can't believe it. My eyes race ahead. I zero in on a paragraph further down on the page. Okay, listen to this, I say, and read. Devin seems to have a difficult-to-modify character and will likely be resistant to treatment. 
Sounds like she really figured out what's going on, Becky says. So what does she recommend? She diagnosed him with RAD, an oppositional defiant disorder like New Hope did. But this woman actually understands how it is affecting him. I can't believe someone finally understands what's going on. I scan ahead, looking for recommendations. I hear Becky talking to the cashier and wait until she's finished. They recommend he continue in treatment programs long-term, medication management. And she says we need to get juvenile justice involved early. It sounds like this psychologist actually knows what she's talking about, Becky says. Relieved and optimistic, I agree. Now that we know what's going on, we can get real treatment. This has been But He Spit in My Coffee. Join me for the next episode to find out what happens next.